invite you to open your Bible with me tonight to Psalm 79. Psalm 79. It's a psalm written out of the uh, greatest devastation of Israel's history. It's written um, in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586 B.C. Thousands were killed, left lying in the streets, as we'll see here. Tens of thousands were dragged away into captivity. Uh, The temple was demolished. The city was decimated. And uh, Psalm 79 is written from the perspective of someone who's been left behind. Uh, We have other psalms uh, written by those who were taken into captivity. Psalm 137, for instance, uh, by the streams of Babylon, we sat and wept. But uh, uh, that's written by someone who was dragged off into captivity. Psalm 79 is written by someone who's been left behind, uh, a survivor in that sense, but a survivor in a destroyed city. And tonight, uh, Psalm 79 is a psalm of Asaph where... Uh, the writer just expresses his faith in a time of incredible uh, difficulty, incredible devastation. And let's give our attention then to Psalm 79, and we'll read it in its whole. Psalm 79, this is God's word. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with, with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, I thank you so much for these psalms that train us in our emotions, how to feel as we walk this pilgrim road, as we experience uh, the trials and tragedies of life. Uh, Lord, um, how, to, how to respond to you, the living God, and, and to worship you as the sheep of your pasture. And so I pray, oh God, by your Holy Spirit tonight, give us uh, ears to hear your word and, and to hearts to receive it and respond to you, our God a holy God, and yet a gracious God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It is said that times of trial, times of suffering, uh, bring out the truth of a person. Uh, Paul Tripp has an article entitled, How Suffering Reveals Your True Self. Uh, His his, uh, little book on suffering talks about the same thing. I read an article uh, this week by a lady named Sarah Walton, the mother of a special needs little boy. And she recounts uh, one day being 
thoroughly shocked by a, 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 just a really ugly outburst of anger towards her little son. All the frustration and hurt, um, the sadness, it just kind of all came spilling out in this really ugly display of anger towards her little boy. And she walked out of the room sort of shaken. Where in the world did that come from? How could she have done that to her little boy? She writes this, The reality is we tend to feel pretty good about ourselves when nothing is pushing our buttons or threatening our comfort and control. But when trials start to press in on us, sinful responses are often not far behind. Though at first we might blame our circumstances for our sin, over time we face the reality that our trials are not the cause of our sin, but the magnifier of what was already there. The trials just magnified the truth that was in the heart all along. And I say that because Psalm 79 is a wonderful revelation of the heart of its author. It's written out of the most distressing circumstance possible. The author is left in the midst of a destroyed Jerusalem. The bodies of loved ones, family members, are lying in the streets. Others have been dragged off into captivity, never to return. His life as he had known it as, has come to an end. The unthinkable has happened. God really has poured out his anger, his judgment on his own people. And out of that devastating circumstance, we see what's in Asaph's heart. And it's a wonderful picture. Uh, this psalm is not a rant against God. This is, uh, it's not a psalm of self-pity. It's a lament. A lament is a prayer of faith in a time of trouble. Kidner says, this is a cry of faith in perplexity, not of fundamental doubt. The question that we can ask tonight as we look at Psalm 79 is, what does true faith look like in times of tragedy? And there are great lessons to be learned here um, for God's people. And so let's look together first at the tragedy itself. Asaph begins by recounting before the Lord what's happened. Of course, God knows, but Asaph in prayer wants to lift this up. God, do you see? Do you really understand? But notice how Asaph, as he, as he writes, does not just see this as a devastation for Jerusalem, uh, but a, a, it's a violation against God himself. Notice in the first two verses uh, the repetition of the word, your. God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. Verse 2, they've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food and the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the field. As Asaph looks at the wreckage uh, and he sees what the Babylonians have done, he, he sees it with the eyes of faith knowing that the Babylonians have committed an act of terror against God 21 years ago. Terrorists committed an act of terror against the United States as they struck the Twin Towers. Many of you remember that day very clearly. Well, Asaph has experienced uh, uh, September 11 in, in the nth degree, but he doesn't just see what's happened to Jerusalem. This has been a, an act of terror against God. Jerusalem is God's inheritance. The temple is God's temple. The, the bodies lying in the streets are the bodies of God's chosen people, the sheep of his pasture. The whole thing is, is shot through with this, this Godward direction, this, this Godward um, 
Asaph's mind is thinking about, this is, this is about God. This isn't just about me. It's not just about uh, uh, my brothers and sisters. It's about God. And we find here Asaph's functioning theology about God. Many, many people say they believe in God. But many people who say they believe in God, even many people who go to church, uh, do not have a, a, an accurate functioning theology of God. Many people who profess to believe in God, what they actually believe in is a higher power, uh, a benevolent being who wishes the best for them and exists to help them have a good life. And so they'll pray to that God, believing that, that God is interested in giving them a good life. But that is why when tragedy strikes, many people struggle in their faith and, and many lose their faith in God because you say they can, they can no longer believe in the midst of the tragedy. They can no longer believe in this God, this benevolent being who exists to help them have a good life. Well, of course, that God never really existed, did he? What if, what if that was never the truth about God in the first place? What if he is completely different and completely other than that? Asaph, in this moment of incredible devastation, is not in danger of losing his faith because his functional theology of God is much richer, much more robust, much deeper, because it comes from Scripture. That's where he gets his understanding of God. He understands that in a fundamental way that, that the God of heaven and earth is the God of Israel, and he has a functioning category for what has happened to Jerusalem. You see, Asaph believes, even in the midst of judgment, he believes that this has happened because God is who he is. God is a holy God. But God in his holiness and God in his, in his judgment against his people has not abandoned his people. He's still, he's still Israel's God. They are still the sheep of his pasture. God has bound himself, you see, he, Asaph is convinced God has bound himself to Israel by covenant promise. And therefore, Asaph is bold to pray as he does. And, and, and it changes the way Asaph thinks about the, the tragedy itself, right? He, the greatest tragedy in Asaph's mind is not the devastation to the city, not even the, the, the desolation of the temple. The, the greatest tragedy is, is what has been done to the glory of God. The bodies lying in the streets are the bodies of God's children, and they're left unburied. What does that say about God? Kidner writes, to lie unburied was the final humiliation as though one had departed unloved and of no account as disposable as an animal. That's what the dead bodies in the streets were saying, and yet, and yet that is not the case for God's children. Asaph is convinced they are not unloved. They are not of no account. And what was tragic is that what has happened, God's judgment against Israel has become fodder for the taunts of the surrounding nations. God's people are being mocked and derided, verse 4, but so was God. Notice verse 10. Why should the nations say, where is their God? The nations are deriding the living God. Where, 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 where is He? Or more, more to the point, what good is he, this God of Israel? Clearly, he's powerless against the gods of Babylon. 
The evidence of his failure, the evidence of his impotence is written in blood-red letters over the the decaying bodies and the decimated streets of Jerusalem. The evidence is everywhere that Israel's God is no God to be feared, no God to be trusted in. And that just rips Asaph's heart. See, because Asaph understands that the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem is not evidence of God's impotence but precisely the opposite. That this is a testimony to the character of God as a holy God and a God of covenant faithfulness. You see that in Asa's petition. Notice the question that Asa asks in verse 5. How long? How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? The question is not why. That's the universal question people ask when tragedy strikes. Why is this happening to me? Asaph does not ask that question, and the reason is he knows exactly why this has happened. It's happened because of Israel's sin. And we know that Asaph is is cognizant of that. He he prays in verses 8 and 9 where he acknowledges Israel's iniquities and asks God to atone for their sin. That's why it's happened. You see, God is a holy God, Israel's God is a holy God who has promised to them that this is what would happen, and he promised that to them in the covenant. If you turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 30, turn uh, to Deuteronomy 30, you'll find that Moses had warned them about this 900 years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. It's just just a marvel, uh, amazing that the devastation is exactly what God had said would happen to them in his covenant. Deuteronomy 30, 15, Moses says, after he's given the Israelites the law, he says, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. That was Moses' prophecy. And Moses, by divine revelation, knew that's exactly what was going to happen. If you look at chapter 31 of Deuteronomy 31, of Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, this is shortly before he dies. He says to the elders, he says, I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Asaph understands his scriptures. All right? This is no mystery what has happened. God is not impotent. God is terrifying. In his, in his holiness, in his justice, in his covenant promise, God is doing exactly what he told Israel that he would do. He's punishing her for her sin. And he's punishing Israel for her sin precisely because Israel was his covenant child. Ligon Duncan, in a sermon on this um, text, just made a, a really interesting point. He says that one of the most offensive teachings of the Bible to the world 
uh, of our day, and, and this has always been true, but one of the most obnoxious, offensive teachings, the, the thing that just infuriates people, is this idea that there's a coming day when God will actually judge people for their sin and send them to hell. It is offensive. People will rail against this doom and gloom message that God would have the audacity. And many people say, I just don't believe in that kind of God. But Lincoln, Lincoln made this point. If God is willing to do this to his own children, what is he willing to do to the nations, to his enemies? If this is what happens to his children, what will happen to his enemies? That's a very, very good thought, very good question. The question for Asaph is not why, but how long? How long will God be angry with them? How long before his face shines on them once more? And you see, he asked the question because he knows, he knows that God is going to be gracious. He knows that the, there's going to come a point when God's anger is going, to, is going to be set aside. His anger lasts for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. He knows that, that God is going to turn, and he's asking God to do that. Do it now. There, there are two petitions in this psalm. The first is a plea for forgiveness. Verse 8 and 9, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. Now, those aren't just words. This is the plea of a man standing in the midst of, of utter devastation and death, standing in the midst of a scene of incredible judgment and holy anger. He understands what's at stake. How could you not? The, bodies are, the, the streets are littered with the bodies of God's people. And yet in the, in the midst of that scene of, of devastation and, and, the, and the holy wrath and anger of God, Asaph stands there and, and pleads for forgiveness, for mercy. Sin is the problem. Sin has caused this. God atoned for our sin. Do not remember our former iniquities. I just love that prayer. Asaph knows that God is a holy God. He sees the evidence all around him. And yet, Asaph knows also that God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, Asaph's theology, once again, is formed by Scripture, not formed simply by what his eyes can see. In that moment, if we just trusted in human sense, any normal person would say that God has gone too far. And that God, the, the, the evidence would scream that God has abandoned and rejected Israel forever. But Asaph doesn't live by what he thinks, by what his eyes tell him. Asaph lives according to the word of God. And, and Asaph knows that God has revealed himself to be a God of compassion. <laughs> Excuse me. Exodus 34 verse 6, when God reveals himself to Moses, what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a merciful God, 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Asaph knows his God. And he's bold to ask forgiveness even in the context, in the face of God's judgment because he believes this is true about God. This is what he is like, a merciful and gracious God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He stands on the revelation, on what God has said and asks that God would be then follow through and God would, would grant that forgiveness. But it's also, the, the second petition of the psalm is a petition for judgment. You see that in verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Verse 12, return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. It's a fascinating request. Asaph knows that Israel has sinned. He knows, he knows that Israel deserves everything that's happened. He doesn't deny any of that. And yet in that moment, he prays that God would show compassion to Israel, forgive Israel, and judge the nations. Judge Israel's enemies. And you know, there might be something in your mind that that's, that's wrestles with that a little bit. Is, is that right? Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Can you, can you uh, when you're under sentence of your own sin, can you pray that God would forgive you and, and judge your enemy? How, is it? How can Asaph want grace for himself and wrath for his enemies? Well, the way to make sense of that is, again, to notice and pay attention to Asaph's prayer. Uh, Asaph isn't, isn't praying on his behalf. Asaph's concern in this prayer is for the glory of God. That's the basis for both his petitions. It's the basis for his petition concerning the nations around Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, the, the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. You see, the, the surrounding nations aren't just Asaph's enemies or Israel's enemies. They're God's enemies. They do not own God as the living God, and that's cosmic crime. They do not call upon his name. They have no concern for his name whatsoever. No interest in his glory. No desire to worship him. Instead, they bow down to these silly uh, little foolish idols they make. Gods that are no gods at all. They, they serve their own pleasures. They glory in their own might. You see, they're not just enemies of Israel, they're, they're, they're foremost, first and foremost enemies of God. And, and Asa's heart cry is that God would glorify his name by stopping their taunts, putting an end to their derision. Why should wicked men who hate God, why should they be allowed to taunt him, deride him? You see, it's, that's, a, that's a godly concern. If, if someone were taunting or mocking and deriding and slandering your, your wife, there ought to be something within you that, that, that yearns to put an end to that. And, and, and that's just such a minuscule thing compared to the glory of God. 
God's children should have this hunger, this desire for God's glory that it just breaks our heart. It, it wounds us when we see the name of God being desecrated, when we see people mocking, laughing, deriding the name of God. You see, it's not wrong for God's children to pray for the day, to long for the day when God's name will no longer be mocked, no longer be rejected or ignored. It's what we're taught to pray by Jesus. When he says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Glorify your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that, that's exactly what Asaph is, is longing for. That God's name be hallowed as it ought to be. See, those who love the Lord know that the greatest evil in the world is, is man's refusal to acknowledge God as God. They refuse to acknowledge God as God or give thanks to Him, Paul says in Romans 1. And the deepest desire of every child of God is that, is that God would hasten the day when that evil will be brought to an end. There, there should be a hunger in us, oh God, and, and start right here in my own heart. Everything in me that denies your glory, everything in me that, that in any way undermines that glory, put it to an end. And oh God, may the earth be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That God would be glorified. And so that's the basis you see of his prayer for judgment. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just a petty, a pay them back. It's oh God, don't let your name be, be mocked and derided. And I love that. That it's also the basis for his prayer in verses 9 and 10. This, this appeal for help. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. Asaph links God's glory with his grace. And he prays that God would forgive their sin, atone for their sin, not just for their benefit or blessing, but to magnify the glory of his own name. You see, the, heathen, the, the, the nations around with their heathen gods, those heathen gods, they're gods of wrath, but there's no God like this God, Israel's God. Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the rem, remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That's the basis of his prayer. That's the rock of his assurance. God is not like the, the, the pagan gods. God is glorious in his mercy. God is glorious in his grace. And he knows, Asaph is convinced that God delights to magnify his glory in showing mercy and compassion to sinful, erring children. And that's on that basis that he ends the psalm. Verse 13, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture. We will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. That's quite a thing to say when you're standing where he's standing. He's standing in the midst of the rubble of the temple and the stench of unburied bodies of his fellow Israelites. And all the evidence suggests that God has rejected Israel forever. And no one could deny that he had every reason to do so. But Asaph knows that judgment is not God's last word. Mercy is. And the reason Asaph knows this is because he knows the character of God and he knows the covenant that God has made with his people. God himself had called Israel to be his own. God had made them his sheep. He had set his love upon, him, upon them and his steadfast love 
endures forever. Friends, aren't you glad that's true of God? There will be times in your life when the evidence will seem to suggest that God has abandoned you, rejected you. And in that moment, the devil and your own accusing conscience will hasten to list all the sins and the failures that would justify God in doing so. Isn't it true that times of suffering bring to memory our sin? Why is that? Because the devil and your conscience are, are saying to you, of, of course this is what God has done to you. This is what you deserve. He's been so patient, and you've been so foolish, and now the roosters come, let's come home to the roost. Now, now God has finally given you what you deserve. And God's people can just tremble. In that, in that place. But, but see, in that moment, you see, that's what Psalm 79 tells us. In that moment, we have a basis for assurance. We have a basis for confidence and joy. Because against the sad reality of our sin and the accusations of the devil, we can raise the glorious truth that God has chosen to glorify his name in our salvation. Think of that. God has chosen to glorify his name in calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, in transforming you from someone who was in love with self and sin and headed for an eternity of condemnation that you richly deserved, and yet God in his mercy knew you before the foundation of the world, in his mercy gave you to Jesus Christ so that Christ would be your advocate and mediator. God in his mercy gave you his Holy Spirit so that the work of Jesus Christ would be applied in truth to your heart. You'd be made a new creation and you'd be sanctified by the power of God and one day glorified in his presence. And God did it all for the glory of his name. All of it. So that in heaven the angels will not marvel and say, what an amazing Christian you were. But the angels will worship and praise God forever. What an astonishing and astounding God who gave his son to die for you. <laughs> Angels are going to shake their head and wonder, and I'm going to be right there saying, I know. I have no idea why. But praise God he did, and praise God he did it for his glory. Isn't it wonderful that, that's, that we get to be instruments displaying the glory of God? Isn't it wonderful that God gets glory in our salvation, and he gets glory in our salvation when he saves us out of our sin and in spite of our sin, the glory of his love, the glory of his mercy, the glory of his justice as Christ goes to the cross to pay the penalty. What an amazing thing to be people of the living God. And what an amazing thing to be able to pray with confidence in this life and in the times of tragedy to pray with boldness. Because we know who God is. We know what his character is like. We trust the covenant that he's made with us in Jesus. A covenant that cannot be broken. God has said you are mine. And God's calling is irrevocable. He's promised to forgive us all of our sins. He's promised to save us to the uttermost. He's promised to bring us spotless without fault and with great joy into his own presence. Where we will forever recount his praise all to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Oh God, who is a God like unto you? Awesome in your glory, 
who is a God like you, a God who forgives iniquity and pardons transgression and sin at the cost of the blood of your own Son. Father, we are awed, we're stunned that this is how you choose to glorify your name in the salvation of sinners like us. But oh God, what a rock of comfort and assurance. Lord, some of us tonight are, are despairing because of our sin. It seems so great, so powerful. We have a hard time believing, Lord, that we could be loved. Oh, Father, I pray for those tonight in that place that you would show them the glory of your character, your covenant in Jesus, that you rise yourself to show mercy to us. You delight to be compassionate and to give us grace. And Father, I thank you too. We glorify you for being a God of justice. We thank you, Lord, for being a God who one day will put an end to all evil. We thank you for your incredible patience in this evil age as you bear the wickedness of men for the sake of your elect. Oh, Father, I, I just pray that this week we would, we would worship you and honor you, Lord, with a deep conviction of the glory of our God in your holy justice and in your infinite love and mercy towards us in Christ. That we would live, Lord, with our eyes fixed on that day when we will see you face to face as Jesus welcomes us home. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, bless us. May these things that we've heard tonight go with us as we live our life this week for the glory of your name because it's the only thing that matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.